You choose Columbus Business First every week to give you the inside industry intelligence for nearly every business sector in central Ohio. And Columbus Business First chose Crate Media as its official podcast partner for its unique show, Women of Influence, now 70 episodes strong. With 4 million shows, hundreds of millions of listeners, and industry advertising revenues approaching $4 billion, podcasting is the fastest growing audio medium in the U.S. From law to medical, construction to automotive, retail to real estate, every brand has a story. Let Crate Media help tell yours. Visit crate.media slash CBF to learn more about how we can help while receiving a free one-hour casting session with our expert producers, which will help to uncover and shape your company's branded podcast. To learn more about sponsoring Columbus Business First Women of Influence podcast, please email Advertising Director Steve Hewitt at shewitt at bizjournals.com to get started. That's S-H-E-W-I-T-T at bizjournals.com. Howdy, this is Eleanor Kennedy, Assistant Managing Editor of Columbus Business First and the host of this podcast, Women of Influence. This podcast features conversations with Columbus's leading women in business in which they talk about how they gained power, how they keep it, and how other women can follow in their footsteps. Today we're chatting with Heather Brilliant, CEO of Diamond Hill Capital Management. Thanks for joining us, Heather. Thanks for having me. So as we were talking a little bit before we started recording, we are catching you about as early in your tenure as possible. <laughs> Indeed. Um, so yeah, you just took over in September. Yes, that's right. So tell me a little bit about how you found yourself at Diamond Hill. Was it a, an opportunity that you pursued? Were you recruited? And sort of what appealed to you about it? Yeah. So Diamond Hill announced earlier this year that they were looking for a new CEO. And it's really because the the person who was the CEO uh, is also a portfolio manager and was really far more interested in investing than in running the business for, I think, um, many, many good reasons. And so once that was announced, they, they did hire a recruiter. And so I kind of went through the recruiting process. But I also had heard about the opportunity originally from um, one of the employees at Diamond Hill, who I used to work with um, many years ago mm. at Morningstar. Mm-hmm. And take me back through some of the earlier steps of your career. I saw when you were with Morningstar, were you in Australia for a little bit? Part of the time, yes. Okay, wow. (laughs) (laughs) How long were you there for? We were in Australia for three and a half years. Oh, how long ago was that? It was um, 2014 to about the end of 2017. Oh, so pretty recently. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So what was that like? Was it just like super different? I mean, it's hot when it's cold and stuff like yes, that? Yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, culturally, I would say it, it's very similar to okay. Midwestern kind of familiarity and everybody's very friendly. And I would say sport is a very big thing in Australia mm-hmm. as it is here as well. Sydney is literally the most majestically beautiful city in the world. Oh, I feel wow. so lucky to have lived there. And even after we'd been there for over three years, every day, I just thought, wow, we are so lucky to live here. Uh-huh. Is the business environment very similar there? Or is there anything different about kind of the way they approach work? And stuff I would like say that? it's reasonably similar. Um, there's a lot of open-mindedness to um, new ideas and innovation and things like that that I think make it a pretty exciting place to work. But also there are... It's a relatively small industry and, mm-hmm. and country. You know, there's only 24 million people in the entire mm-hmm. country. Mm-hmm. And so uh, that's about the same as Greater Manhattan mm-hmm. by itself. <laughs> so um, so the dynamic of that, I think, is that Australia feels very, very much like a, a big family and people kind of look out for each other a little oh, bit more. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Cool. My main exposure to Australia is the works of Leanne Moriarty. So, Oh, yes. That. I love her. 
Okay, well then, so now in the job you're in now, we'll go back to that a little bit. In this first month and a half, kind of what has surprised you about the position or about the company or just what stood out, really? Well, first I'd say it when I was interviewing with Diamond Hill, it was very clear to me that it is a, a unique firm in the investment management industry because of the importance of aligning interests between employees and clients. And I think Diamond Hill really goes further in doing that than almost any investment manager I've ever seen. And so that led me to believe that the culture of the firm would be one where clients' interests truly are the primary driver for Mm -hmm. everybody's behavior, um, which is, like I said, pretty rare to find. And I was so pleasantly surprised to really find out that is reality at Mm -hmm. Diamond Hill and that, um, you know, you have people who want to make better investment decisions so that their clients can save better for retirement and be sure they can put their kids through college and things that I think are very real and tangible that Mm -hmm. are challenges that our clients face every day. How does a firm promote that and align those interests? Sort of what does that look like? First of all, we don't allow our employees to have outside investments. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, we're all making investment decisions for our clients and we believe we're making the best decisions we can make for them. And so we make them for ourselves, too. So mm-hmm. our employees invest alongside our clients in our funds. And then also um, every employee, when they come in, we grant them some shares. Diamond Hill is a publicly traded investment manager. So Mm -hmm. we have the ability to grant equity to every employee when they come in so that they're also thinking about the way we run our firm overall as shareholders. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really beneficial too. Gotcha. How big is your team? 130 people approximately. Wow. So what's been the hardest part of uh, taking over? Well, there's so much to learn. And I said from the moment I started that I wanted to meet individually with every employee. And while we do only have 130 people, um, it's going to take me probably maybe even through the end of the first quarter to really get to everybody individually one-on-one. And so in the interest of of time, I started meeting with people in small groups as well. (laughs) Do some lunches. Yes, exactly, exactly. And it's just everyone's been so welcoming. It really is a a great culture and firm. On the topic of this podcast, what's the gender breakdown like there? And kind of in the industry as a whole, is it unusual for you to be a female? CEO of a, a financial management firm. Yes, I would say female CEOs are pretty rare still. Um, I don't have the data off the top of my head, but I would be surprised if 10% of publicly traded firms have a female CEO. Mm-hmm. So that's rare. And then within investment management too, it is quite rare because there are not a lot of women in the investment management industry, broadly mm-hmm. speaking. Just to give you one example, the CFA Institute, which gives the CFA designation to analysts um, who, who analyze companies for inclusion in portfolios and, and act as portfolio managers, They have put out data on a regular basis that shows that only 19% of charter holders around the world are female. Mm -hmm. And uh, that number is actually worse in Columbus, uh, for example. Mm -hmm. So I think it's actually worse in the U.S. than it is in some emerging markets where more women are attracted to the industry and are going through the program. So it is, it's very challenging to, I think, have gender balance. Yeah. I think Diamond Hill has done a pretty good job across the firm, but we do still have a pretty small number of women on our investment team. And mm-hmm. so we'd love to continue to move in a direction of bolstering that where possible. Yeah. Is that something that in your career you've been, you know, conscious of and, and made decisions based on the fact that, you know, woman in a man's game or whatever, or, you know, do you just kind of keep your head down and keep on going? And what does that look like? 
I'd say the first 15 years of my career, I was more keep your head down and just do your best. And Mm -hmm. if I could be successful, anybody else could too. So, you know, Mm -hmm. we'll just all work on our own to do our best. And it was probably about, um, I don't know, seven or eight years ago that I thought, well, if women had the equal opportunity to be successful in this industry, there would be more of us. And where are we all? And Mm -hmm. so there must be something more going on. Um, And so I've done a lot of research and and reading over that last period about um, the importance of cognitive diversity just from a decision-making perspective. And so I've become a big advocate for making sure teams are cognitively diverse. And I think gender diversity is, you know, one example of that or one way that you can ensure you have improved cognitive diversity. But many other types of observable or less, less easy to observe types of diversity are relevant as well. It's really about people who think differently about how to solve problems. So that's what cognitive diversity is, just people who bring different thought processes. Yes, exactly. Uh, And there's an author at the University of Michigan named Scott Page who's written a couple books on this concept. And I really have to meet him one of these days because (laughs) I keep quoting him all over the place. But, you know, he's done a lot of work around that element of, you know, cognitive diversity and and why it's so beneficial in terms of solving problems. Mm -hmm. And some data came out recently, actually, that women run firms perform better from a uh, stock return perspective, from a a growth perspective. And that is, I I believe that to be more either anecdotal or um, just, you know, something you could observe as as opposed to causal. Like, I don't think it's because women are any better at running firms. I think um, it's just kind of coincidental, Mm -hmm. but Mm -hmm. it still shows, I think, the importance of making sure we have diverse teams. Yeah. So what can a firm do or what can the industry do to, to change that? Yep. First, I mean, I think there's a lot of challenge around the pipeline. Uh So we need to encourage more women um, and more people with a variety of diverse backgrounds to come into our industry. And one way we can do that, I think, is by starting the process earlier of making um, making sure women and others are aware of our industry as a career possibility. And so we have started doing a lot more as a firm to go to different recruiting fairs and talking to university students. And I also, for the last couple of years, have spoken with a program called Girls Who Invest, Mm -hmm. which is a a program that is being run at a couple different universities now and has, I think, over 100 people participating in it now each summer, where they, they take women who I believe are juniors are coming out of their junior year maybe in um, in college and put them through like a six-week training program in the classroom and then get them paid internships with investment management firms. Mm-hmm. So I think improving the pipeline is a very important thing. Second, I think you, you need to really force yourself to have diverse candidate slates. So when you're interviewing for a new job and a recruiter or even your HR people maybe put in front of you a list of people that are, you know, eight men and, and two women – and say, well, this is who applied. This is all we could find. I think we as leaders have to push back on that. Mm-hmm. And we have to say, well, we're not closing this job and starting the interviews until we can come up with a list that is reasonably diverse. Mm-hmm. I think that means helping people think beyond traditional measures of potential success. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if, if financial analysts are only 19% female, we can't say, well, you have to have financial analyst experience or else don't apply. Uh-huh, and uh-huh. so, you know, thinking more laterally about skills that can be applied to financial analysis, for example, I think are ways to help improve that, yeah. that opportunity. So when you were in college or perhaps you were younger, how did you realize that finance was an industry that you wanted to go into? 
Well, it wasn't my lifelong dream. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Just because I wasn't super familiar with investment Mm -hmm. management in particular. And so um, when I was graduating college, I thought, you know, I would be a lawyer. And Mm -hmm. so instead of going to law school, I wanted to first work for a couple years and make sure that law school was what I really wanted to do. And in that process, I ended up going through a financial analyst analysis training program at Bank of America. In that program, I I realized how much financial analysis is very similar to debate, which was kind of my passion in high school and college. I too did debate (laughs) Oh, you did? Did you do policy? I did. Yes. That's so exciting. (laughs) (laughs) Where did you go to high school? You didn't go to Glenbrooks, did you? No, I went to OPRS. Oh, okay. All right. So, I mean, my high school. I'm from Indiana where we do a slightly, like, more old school style of debate. Were they doing national circuit style? Yeah. Uh, yep. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's, I've never really done that. Okay. Well, like, that's okay. I don't do like the hiccup and everything. It's very <laughs> I can talk really fast. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, <laughs> we'll switch this podcast to a uh, debate format. Anyways, so you saw that financial analysis was similar to debate. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and I think specifically when you're looking at a, an investment idea, you have to be really balanced about, you know, understanding what is the upside and what is the downside. And, you know, how do you get enough facts to come on one side or the other if you think it's a a long or a short or a buy or one to pass on? And then as you're getting additional evidence, you know, while you hold the company or the stock, you have to really be able to to ascertain whether that evidence is confirming your original thesis or actually refuting it. And Mm -hmm. I think um, trying to avoid confirmation bias where you assume it's confirming your original view because... That's, you know, because you're kind of anchored on that that perspective, I think is one of the things that separates reasonable analysts from great ones. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So. Uh, just so excited to talk about debate. I know. I know. <laughs> <laughs> and so then I saw, so it, you went to grad school yep. at down the line. How did you decide that was kind of the right next step? So actually, at first, I got my CFA. I liked that because you, it was a very, it's a self-study program. You can kind of do it on your own time. And um, it's much, much cheaper than an MBA. Mm-hmm. Also, I did it because I thought, well, I don't have a financial analyst background, but I, I now realize this is the career I want to pursue, so I should bolster my abilities there. Uh, when I was almost done with my CFA, I was working at an investment manager who said that I couldn't be promoted unless I had an MBA. Mm. And I just thought, well... If I have to have both to make sure that more doors are open to me, then that's what I'm going to do. And Mm -hmm. so I went part-time to the University of Chicago Booth School of Business Mm -hmm. and um, did my MBA in the evenings. Gotcha. That must have been intense. It was was a lot, but fortunately (laughs) I didn't have any kids then. Oh, okay. I was going to say, not a school that's known for its uh, ease of balancing, (laughs) its various expectations. So you're from Chicago and you kind of stayed in Chicago all the way through... Yes. Then. I mean, during undergrad, I studied abroad for a year in Spain. But okay. otherwise, yes, I stayed in Chicago until we moved to Australia. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. So, yeah. Awesome. Cool. And now you're in Columbus, Ohio. And now here we are. <laughs> yes. Switching gears a little bit, have you had any real notable mentors in your career? And kind of how did you identify those people and what did you learn from them? Yep. So I like to think of mentors as a uh, kind of a group of people that you can rely upon to help you with a variety of different elements in your career. And so as opposed to maybe having a single mentor or somebody who's kind of like helping guide you through multiple steps of Mm -hmm. your career. 
I'd say the first one I had was a woman I went to college with. She was a year older than me. And she introduced me to equity research. So mm-hmm. while I was working at Bank of America, it was very bank-oriented and more on the sleepy side. And she said she, she was working at an investment management firm, and she said, you would really love this, and we have an opening on our international team. And she knew international was a passion of mine. And so I felt like from then on, you know, making career moves, I always wanted to, to check in with her and mm-hmm. say, is this, you know, do you think I'm staying on a productive path? Do you think I should shift away from being an analyst to, you know, being in a leadership role? And she always had really great advice and still Mm -hmm. does to this day. And then, you know, also one of the portfolio managers I worked with has been very helpful in seeking advice from him along the way. He's a great investor and still invests on his own and um, has been just always open to sharing ideas and giving advice. And I really Mm -hmm. appreciate his, his counsel as well. Have you ever had people contact you kind of to have a formal mentorship relationship or, you know, do you find it's more productive if somebody wants your advice, if just sort of that comes about more organically, I guess? I think it works better organically and kind of topic by topic. Mm -hmm. Um, I have had people approach me. I can think of a couple instances where people asked me if I would mentor them. And I've never been based in the same location as someone who's asked me that. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so what I usually say is, you know, you can call me anytime and I'm happy to exchange ideas via email, but I don't want to let you down. You know, I don't Mm -hmm. want you to feel like, uh, I don't feel like I could be a proper, you know, one-on-one ongoing mentor to you from, you know, across the world. And so I have generally agreed with those people, you know, happy to talk at any point about whatever's on their mind. I do think also when we think about women getting ahead in business or in investment management or really any industry, that the thing we need to focus on setting up for ourselves as much as mentorship is sponsorship. And when I say that, I I mean the distinction really being that we need to make sure we are cultivating relationships of people who are in the room when decisions are being made about things like promotions and compensation. Mm -hmm. And it's the people who I think stand up for you when you aren't there that really help you take your career to the next level. For whatever reason, the data shows that men are better at cultivating these sponsorship type relationships Mm -hmm. than women are. So I feel like we as women need to really make sure we're going out of our way to cultivate those relationships and um, develop sponsors. Yeah, that's interesting. I I mean, obviously I asked the question, but I always kind of wonder why like mentorship is such like a buzzword of like women in business or whatever. Um, And I don't really know the answer why, but the sponsorship seems much more, yes, like tangible. (laughs) I I, I think it gets to the essence better personally. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. But again, I get do those relationships, if, if somebody wanted you to, to have a sponsorship relationship, that's just something that needs to build organically from working with them? Or are there steps that someone can take to build that? I think we could give each other the benefit of the doubt a little more easily. And mm-hmm. so, yes, it needs to be pretty intentional, um, but it, it really only works usually within the same organization or within, mm-hmm. um, you know, for getting on boards or things like that. I think it can be helpful as well, but someone can't really be your sponsor if they aren't in the room where yes. your decisions about you are being made. Yes, <laughs> so yes, yeah, it does sense. require some kind yeah. of overlap. Now on the subjects of boards, you mentioned the CFA Institute earlier, right? You're yep. very involved with that organization. Yes, I am on the board of CFA Institute. Gotcha. So just tell me a little bit about how that has become kind of an important part of your career or, or something sure. that it seems like you spent a long time on. I do, I do. <laughs> well, it started out when I was living in Chicago and I got involved with the CFA Society of Chicago. And CFA Institute is kind of organized such that there's a global organization, which is the Institute, and then there are local societies, um, about 155 local societies around the world. And the local societies are, are independent, but they're affiliated with mm-hmm. CFA Institute. 
So I started out on the CFA Society of Chicago's board, and I really liked the experience of it and felt like it was a great way to start early giving back to the industry and making sure we were kind of advocating for change and thinking about putting investor interests first. And I loved the mission of CFA Institute, which really is about making sure our industry is doing the best it can do, not only for our clients, but also for society. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's a really positive message for us to spread. And then, yeah, just through involvement, kind of got to know a lot of the people on the the Institute board. You know, since I love all things international and global, uh, I loved the opportunity to be on the Institute board where everybody on it is from all over the world. Oh, cool. Very intentionally geographically diverse. Interesting. So probably should have asked this at the beginning. What does CFA stand for? (laughs) Chartered Financial Analyst. Okay. I'll put it in like the description. (laughs) Fair enough. These are business people. They'll know. (laughs) Pivoting again, I want to just get to know you a little bit more. Where would we find you on a free Saturday morning? Well, probably going for a run with my 13-year-old. Mm, okay. Neither of us are very serious runners, <laughs> <laughs> but we both love to have that as an opportunity to spend time together. And, you know, sometimes I have to lure him to do it by saying we can run to the donut shop. <laughs> <laughs> that's my way to... That's a, I recently tweeted about a time when I bought, was buying some beer on the way back from a run. Like, I had run to the store. That's like, perfect. You know, you got to motivate yourself yeah, somehow. Exactly. <laughs> Um, and now with my kids being the ages they are, I'm frequently at some kind of sporting event. <laughs> mm, mm-hmm. Yeah, you said you had two kids? Yes, I have two boys. Okay, so. and they're both early teens? Yeah, they're 13 and 11. Gotcha. So, yeah. Cool. Are you a big reader? Do you read much? And what I do you like am. to read? I love to read. And in fact, not only do I love to read, but I also love to buy books. Oh. <laughs> So on my Kindle app at any given point, I probably have about 20 books that I am dying to read but haven't started yet for whatever reason. Uh Um, And then another who knows how many that I have actually read. Uh I like to read fiction as well as kind of business books. The most interesting one I read lately was The Culture Code. It's a really good book about, you know, how you can really think more broadly around the culture of the organizations that we all work Mm -hmm. in and lead. And and, um, I thought they had some really good ideas about how leaders need to make sure they are um, making themselves vulnerable and opening up a culture where people can be themselves and can feel like they can dissent without any fear of repercussion. What type of fiction do you like to read or just kind of anything? My favorite category is historical fiction because I love, you know, knowing that it's set in some kind of um, way that gives you some reality as well. Yeah, you're like learning. Yeah. Well, I mean, I guess all reading is learning, but you're (laughs) learning about the history as well. Yeah, like a period that you might not otherwise know about. Yeah. I mean, I also love really just any kind of light fiction, too. Mm -hmm. If I am reading on an airplane or at a time when I would be really tired and I don't feel like I'm absorbing, Mm -hmm. then I'm more likely to read something like Leanne Moriarty. Yeah, (laughs) great. Let's see. What would people be surprised to learn about you? Hmm. They might be surprised to learn that I... hmm, I know, it's a hard question. (laughs) I don't know what I would say people would be surprised to learn about me. I have to think about it. I know. They might be surprised to learn that on an occasional weekend, I really like to sleep in, even ah. though the older I get, the less that, the less late that means. But <laughs> I think people assume that 
CEOs are go, go, going all the time, and I generally am, but if I could sleep until 8 o'clock on a Saturday, that's wonderful. Are you more of a morning person or a night owl? I'm actually more of a morning person usually, so mm-hmm. I think that's why it's so surprising to yes. me, but yeah, sometimes you just have to catch up, I guess. Mm-hmm. How many hours a week are you working? I've never really measured it. Yeah. <laughs> probably better not to, but you know, while I don't necessarily think that work-life balance is a real thing anymore, I think everything is so integrated, mm-hmm. uh, I do think it's really important for people to have flexibility. Mm-hmm. And so um, you know, even if you have a job that's very demanding for it to be able to be done elsewhere, or you know, like I never go to the office on the weekends, I work on the weekends, but mm-hmm. I always do it from home. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just, to me, that's, that's sufficient flexibility. For other people, it wouldn't be. They need to clear their heads or they need to uh, go to the office and focus. And I think the great thing about flexibility is it can be defined individually by everybody. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's a good way to, to look at it, I think. Because you're, yeah. you're always, I don't know, in many jobs, you're always thinking about work in some way or like, you know, have the opportunity with your phone or whatever to do something. Yes. But right, the thing is that you also, that means you can detach in different ways yeah when needed when you're at the sporting event for your kids yes exactly (laughs) final question if you were talking to someone early in their career 22 just out of college who was aspiring to kind of follow in your footsteps have a job similar to where you're at now what's the biggest piece of advice you would give them I would say that the to the extent possible try to define where you want to go and then figure out what the roadmap looks like to get there because Well, certainly you won't follow the steps sequentially necessarily. Um, I think at least having some kind of plan about the skills that you'd like to develop and the person you'd like to become is really helpful in in moving in that direction. Mm -hmm. Great. Well, it's been terrific chatting with you. We'll talk about High School Debate a bunch more. (laughs) Definitely. That'll be podcast part two, High School Debate Stories. But thank you so much, Heather. It was a joy. And thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks very much for having me.